we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, we do not take this moment lightly of praying. We, We realize, God, that we need your help to, re- to see clearly that which you're doing. Um, so we, we ask you now to open our eyes to enable us to see and most assuredly to enable us to believe. And in that belief, God, we would then live in such a way that we would have hope and people would see us and ask us of that hope that's within us. This we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings and chapter 8, please. 2 Kings and chapter 8. I want to read the first six verses. 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now Elisha, the prophet you remember, now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She met with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored uh, the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is the son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. In our call to worship this morning, the very last line of it, I trust you pay attention to all of these things, the very last line of it from Psalm 107 is this. It said, Whoever is wise... Let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. These things in Psalm 107 are all the things that took place in the life of Israel. That's one of those those sort of history summary psalms where where God rehearses for the people uh, their lives, their sin, his, his restoration, their sin, his restoration, all of that. And so at the end of that psalm, the word is that if you're wise, if you want to be wise, that is you want to get it, if you want to be wise then you need to, 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 to put your mind around and upon the steadfast love of God. That love of God that never stops loving. The love of God that's made a promise to love and will continue to love. And we see how he continued to love Israel and us even in the midst of our rebellion. And that's the steadfast, the sticking the steadfast, the covenant, based on promise, love of God. That's the kind of love of God that we read in the scriptures. It says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And he says if you want to be wise, you'll understand that. You'll meditate on that. You'll get that. And so as, as, we, as we come to do that, you see, that 
understanding that steadfast love of God will help us to deal with what is past, what is present, what is to come. And we get this sort of meditation on the steadfast love of God, his dealings with us in various places. We can read through the scripture, obviously, and we do, and we get various propositions concerning God's love and who he is. But we also read of, of God's particular dealings in people's lives. And that's why it's necessary for us to really take to heart, to really get, to put in our minds these stories in the Old Testament. Now, if these were current things, and at least in my generation, we would have referred to them as testimonies. That is, a witness to the steadfast love of God. In our day, people refer to one story, and that's all right, I don't like it as well, but you know, I'm old. Uh, but this, and so we read these stories, and we need to tuck them away in our minds and pull them out as need be. So this particular woman was from Shunem, known in the scripture as the Shunemite woman. And, 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 and we need to know this story because it will help us to, to consider, it will help us to meditate upon, it will help us to see the steadfast love of God. Now, when do we normally need to see the steadfast love of God? When we're not seeing the steadfast love of God. There's a great Christmas hymn called, I Wonder as I Wander. I don't know if you do that, but in my wanderings in life, there's sometimes I wonder. Now, sometimes I wonder because God is so great and I, I sit in his majesty and it's just a great wonder to me. But sometimes I'm scratching my head wondering, what's this all about? Why this? Why is this happening? And I begin to wonder about the steadfast love of God. I begin to wonder whether he really rules and reigns. I really begin to wonder if all the things that sin has taken from our lives and from the earth will be ever restored. I wonder about that because I look at it and I go, how can we get, from, get, get to there from here? And then I pull out these stories <laughs> because they're glimpses, they're intrusions of, of this greatness of God where he says, look Here's a package for you to hang on to. You're not seeing it now. Hang on to this. This will enable you to see my steadfast love and then live as I've called you to live for the moment, which is by faith, trusting. This will be someplace, somewhere you can grab a hold of and have hope. Some of you know that a number of years ago, my wife was in the hospital, and, and they told me she was going to die and all of that. Most of you know that story, I suppose. If you don't, that's not what's terribly important here. But what was interesting is the nurse that we had in, in the ICU that was our 24-7 nurse, uh, basically, while well, she was on for 12 hours, and she stayed in the room the whole time with us. After uh, Karen got better, and miraculously, you know that story too, and all of that, number on, our, on the year anniversary of... Of, of Karen's illness, took her back to the ICU to meet all the people that cared for her because they would never have recognized her because the last time they saw her, she didn't look like she does now. And so I took her in and I introduced her to this nurse in ICU and that we all cried together for a while. And then we saw her again later 
And she said to Karen, she said, you know, you're my new story. My, old, my last one was 25 years old. And what she meant by that is when people come into the ICU hopeless, she tells them about Karen. And she does that because she wants to give them hope. And so as we read through the scripture accounts of situations that took place in the lives of the people of God, they're there to give us hope. This is a story for us, something to grab a hold of so that when we are feeling hopeless, when we're looking in situations where we don't know how we're going to get there from here, we don't really think about restoration ever being true when we're wondering as we wander. Pull this out. So my primary uh, purpose today is that you get this story. And you spend the rest of your life thinking about it. Now, there'll be some theological implications we'll pull out, you know me. And there'll be some lessons and all of that. But, but really, what I really want you to go home with today, I want you to get this story. So it comes really, then we see 2 Kings chapter 8. But we realize that there's more to this story than is here. Because the king is musing with Gehazi about the life and times of the prophet Elisha. Now, we don't believe that he's doing that because he has any particular belief because he was a horrible king. He was curious. He wasn't committed. He was fascinated, but really he didn't have any faith. But, 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 but he wanted to know the, the stories. For whatever reason, on that day, at that moment in time, Gehazi was there. Gehazi used to travel with, with Elisha, as you know. And so, so he says, I want you to tell me some stories. So Elisha goes back and he tells a story about this woman whose son was raised to life. And, and that story is in the scripture as well. It's in, it's, in, it's in 2 Kings in chapter 4. And it's fascinating. You should read it. It comes in that chapter. You can spend the afternoon or whenever uh, reading that. But just, let, me just, let me just give it to you. Stories like this. There's a, a Shunammite woman, a woman from Shunam, who's married to an old man. And she has no children, no son at least. But she appears to be wealthy. At least that's what the scripture says. And she watches Elisha travel. And she thinks... She's sort of pre-Hilton here, pre-Holiday Inn. She thinks he needs a room. And so she and her husband go up on their roof and they make this room for the prophet so that when he's traveling through, he can stay there. What a great thing. And so Elisha's very pleased with that and happy. And so he, he, he wants to do something nice for her. And so he says to, him, how can I, he says to her, how can I help you? He says, I can put a good word for you in with the king or even with the commander of the army. In other words, he says, I could set it up so you're really protected by the king and by the commander of the army. I can do that. I know these people. And, and she says, no, 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 no. I dwell among my own people. It's a quote. See, what she means by that is I'm secure with my people. This is my home. I fear nothing being here. I'm safe. I don't need you to do that for me. You know, but Elisha's thinking, but, but, but I want to do something nice for her. So he says to Gehazi, do you know anything I can do for her? Does she have a particular need? And Gehazi says, well, you know, Elisha, she has no son. And her husband is old. And by that he means that, that it's possible because she has no son in that culture that the name of her family will, will be eliminated, will get wiped out because there's no heir. It's a very important thing. And so he says, she has no son. And so Elisha goes to her and says, next year at this time, you'll have a son. And she says to him, in effect, if we could sort of translate this at least my way, she would say, no, Elisha, don't fool with me. 
So you get a sense that she really wanted a son, and that was the longing of her heart. But, 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 but when he said that, she wanted to say to him, now, you better not be kidding around about this. This isn't a light thing with me. This is important. And Elisha says, trust me, you'll have a son next year at this time. Well, she does. She has a son. So you can only imagine, think about this woman and just how grateful she is and, and just the, the joy to her life, always wanting a son, realizing it culturally that if she doesn't have a son, there's no heir, no heir. The name of the family is lost. And, and so all of that is wrapped up in this son. And, and it's great. You can only imagine moms and dads what that would be like in that situation. But then later, we don't know exactly when, we get this sense of probably anywhere from late elementary school in our ways to sort of middle school or so. He, he goes out with his dad uh, for the reaping. And he says to his dad, I have a headache. And so his dad brings him home and he gives him to his mom. And, and the little boy uh, lays his head on his mother's lap until noon, the scripture said. So for some period of time. So you see the intimacy there. And he dies. What would you be thinking at that time if you're this woman? Elisha, I said, don't fool with me. And so she takes the boy and she takes him up and she puts him in the prophet's room that's on the roof. Elisha's not there. He's at Mount Carmel. He's in Carmel. So, so she, she puts him in the prophet's room and, and she doesn't tell anybody what's up. She gets a driver and says, take me as quickly as you can. Don't stop till we get to Elisha. So as she gets there and as they're approaching, Elisha's with Gehazi and he, see, and he tells Gehazi, run out and, and see what she wants. I know this woman. And so Gehazi runs out, he, he sees the woman, and he says to her, is everything okay? And Elisha's instructions to Gehazi were, ask her about herself, her husband, and her son. And so Gehazi goes out to her and he says, is your husband okay? Are you okay? Is your son okay? And she says, everything's okay. Because she didn't go to see Gehazi. She catches her sights on Elisha, and she runs to Elisha, and she takes and, and bows down, grabs hold of his feet. Elisha gets it at that point, and he's a little confused because he's the prophet. He's supposed to know this stuff before, you know, anybody tells him. And so he says, the Lord has kept this from me. But, but so he says to, to, to Gehazi, take my staff. Not a group of people that would serve him, but a stick. Take my staff, right? Take my staff and, and go to where this boy is. So Gehazi goes to where the boy is, up in the room there uh, uh, that they had set aside for the prophet. And he takes Elisha's staff and he lays it over the boy and nothing happens. Elisha and the woman are following along and so they get there and, and Elisha goes into the room with Gehazi and Elisha then, he lays, the scripture said he spreads himself out across the boy. Elisha was a full-grown man. The boy was smaller, so you can only imagine what that must look like. But he says he took his, he was eye to eye, right? Hand to hand, lips to lips, face to face. That's the picture. And he prays. And he feels the boy getting warm, but that's all. So Elisha gets up, he goes around, comes back, does the same thing again, lays on the boy in the same way, spreads himself out the same way. And as he does, the boy sneezes seven times and his eyes open and he's restored to life. Story ends. But you can imagine this woman seeing, ah, restoration of my inheritance, my name, because my son has been raised. Now, 
going to leave them. And there's another famine going to happen in the land. And you know, famines happen in ancient Israel because the people were being judged. Because God had been delivering, and yet still they were unfaithful and ungrateful. So another famine comes. This famine is going to come for seven years. You might remember the last famine that we talked about was in the days of Elijah, prior to Elisha, and that famine lasted only for three and a half years, this one for seven. You get the sense that things are getting worse in ancient Israel, the judgment is getting stiffer. And so Elisha now comes to this woman who he's staying in her house from time to time. He had promised, given, and she had gotten a son. He had raised this son up. They're, they're connected, uh, Elisha and this woman. And, and he says to her, there's going to be a famine in the land, so I want you to leave here. Go somewhere and live during this time, you and your household, so that you can survive. So we see the grace in that, no doubt. Now, by this time, we don't have any word at all about, about her husband particularly, but, 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 but so she may be widowed by now. He was old back then when the child first came. But, but she goes and she stays with the Philistines. We see the grace in that. That's wonderful. She's being sustained because there's a famine in Israel and she doesn't have to experience that. But let's not run by this too quickly. Think about what's happened in your life in the last seven years. How much of that wouldn't have happened if you had been in exile? If you had been not at home, not where you want to be, not where your people are, not where you desire to live, but you're off into another country in a different language, in a different culture, and you're holed up there in some way. She was a wealthy woman, so it doesn't have, we don't see any miraculous provision given to her. Perhaps she had enough wealth to buy all that she needed there and all of that. She was sustained, but still, don't discount the loneliness. Don't discount the displacement. Don't discount that this was seven years off to where she didn't want to be. And at the end of that seven-year period of time, she comes home. You can only, you can only anticipate the, 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 the great joy in her life to say the seven years are up. Now, we don't have any indication that she knew the famine was over. It's just that the prophet had said in seven years it'll be over. So she was probably marking out the days. Seven years were up. Boom, she returns to her home only to find that it's not hers anymore. Somebody else has it. Someone else has taken it over. It could have been a neighbor. We don't know. It doesn't say. It could have been the king. We don't know. It just simply says that it's not hers anymore. She has to go and appeal to the king for it. Think about what that must have been like in this woman's life. First, she has no son. Promise of a son. She gets a son. Then he dies. All those emotions in the midst of all of that. And then she, she thinks all is well. She gets warning of a famine to go off so she can be sustained and live. And then when she comes home, the, the nightmare happens again. No inheritance. No land. No home. One commentator from a hundred or so years ago, Scotsman Alexander Stewart, puts it like this, speculating imagining what it must be like. He said, this must have been a bitter disappointment. The usurpers refused to acknowledge the widow's claims and she found herself homeless and destitute. What no doubt added to the poignancy of her grief. It introduced into it at least the element of perplexity and unsettlement was the fact that her loss had been entailed through obedience to the divine command. It seemed as if she was being penalized for her piety. Faith 
had resulted in deprivation. Loyalty to God had involved forfeiture of the house and land. She who had sought in every detail to guide her life according to the divine will was being plunged into one sorrow after another, while others who disowned the authority of that will and were a law unto themselves seemed to prosper through their impiety. The question that in another age distracted the mind of the psalmist have forced itself upon the heart, may have forced itself upon the heart of the Shunammites. How can God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? His point is this. She had been obedient. Prophet said, go, she went. She comes back and those who hadn't been obedient, who were idolaters, took her property. The, the, the quote there at the end that Stuart notes is from Psalm 73, and that's, that's the great psalm where the psalmist looks at the world and says, why are all the unrighteous prospering and I'm righteous and I'm not? God, what's the deal? Do you know what's going on here, God? At times we feel that way. We wonder as we wander why it's the way that it is, you see. Well, she no doubt did as well. Now, Elisha was in Damascus. So her only recourse was to go to the king. So she goes to the king. That moment in time, you can think about all the discussion, all the decisions that she's making. How do we get to the king? When do we go? Who comes? All those sorts of things. And so she happens to arrive uh, at where the king is just at the time when Gehazi is telling the king about the life and times of the prophet Isaiah, and he's right at the point where he's telling the king about this woman whose son, Elisha, had raised from the dead. What a coincidence. What had happened for all of that? to take place at that moment in time. I mean, at the end of the famine, right on time, at the end of the seven years, she had to get up and go and travel back and all the things that can happen, delay a trip or make it go faster between uh, where she was in Philistia and, and, and where she would be at her home uh, and, and all of that. And then, then getting home, seeing it, I don't know how much time would have taken place for her to process what had happened and, and how long it would take her to get from there to where the king was and all of that. So all that's taking place. The king just so happens to wake up one morning thinking, I want to know about Elisha. I need some history here. Gehazi, tell me. And, and, and when did he start telling? And in what order did those stories come? And it just so happened that at this moment in time, he's hearing, the, you can get this picture of Gehazi saying to the king, and king, you're not going to believe this. But the boy died. And then Elisha came into this room and he laid on top of the boy, head, eyes to eyes, lips to lips, hands to hand. There he was. And, 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 and first the boy just got warm. Elisha gets up, walks around a while, and then he gets back on, and he, and he puts head to head, eyes to eyes, lips to lips, hands to hand, and he prays again. Boom, the kid sneezes, and, and he wakes up, and, and then this woman comes in and knocks on the door or something, and, and the attendant says this woman has, has an urgent plea, a her, urgent petition for the king. She walks in, begins to go, and Gehazi goes, whoa, that's the woman. If it happened the day before, the king wouldn't have been thinking about her. He wouldn't have seen how all this would come together. He may have denied her request. She may have been homeless. 
Which had come the next day, the king, after he slept on it a while. Who knows what his mood might be. But right at that moment in time, just at the right time, all this came together. Hmm. How does that make us wise concerning the steadfast love of God? Well, I suspect there are times in this woman's life that she didn't see the steadfast love of God. Who knows what she thought about that during the time when she did not have a son. What she thought about the moment her son died. What she was thinking about when, when, when she had to leave her home because of this famine. Oh yeah, God is for me. He's going to help me. But why do I have to leave my home? Can't he help me in some other way? And then when she comes back and, and, and all the property is gone, what must she be thinking at that point in time? God, where are you? I thought, I read about, I know the steadfast love of God, but, but what's here now? Why this? And, and, and that's exactly the way we find ourselves a good bit of the time. A good bit of the time. How then do we cling to hope? Why is it that we're going to think there's restoration? Well, that's when we pull out this story. And we learn something of the great providence, theological word, the great providence of God. And we don't always see it, if you will, but it's going on. This, this word providence is defined like this. J.A. Packer, a theologian of some note, puts it like this. He said, the providence is the unceasing activity of the creator. Did you catch that? Unceasing, always going on, never stops. Activity, work. The unceasing activity of the creator of God, whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill, we see the goodness of God, he upholds his creatures, sustains them, in an ordered existence. He guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men. So he's governing and guiding everything, all events, circumstances, and even free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. Now our dear friend Jerry Bridges has simplified that a bit, as he's good at doing and he just puts it like this. He says, God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creatures for his own glory and the good of his people. That's going on all the time because God is God. We have all kinds of questions about that. How does that work? How does God do that? Well, first, you see, it helps being God. You see, yeah, I have a dear friend who often of God says, what is there about unfathomable that you don't understand? You see, it helps being God. You see, of course, we don't know how he does that. But he does. That's the testimony of Scripture. And he says, I want you to hang on to that He's always at work doing that. At any one moment in time, as you're wandering, you may be wondering how he's doing that or what that looks like. And he says, now trust me in the midst of this. And how do we do that? How do we hold on to that? Well, we go back to stories. We think of this woman. And we realize that if we were her, we'd be wondering as we're wandering, just as she must have been. But yet, we see it pulled through. We, we see it come to the end. 
all the way to the fact where everything is restored to her. Not only does she get her land back, but she gets back everything that that land produced while she wasn't there. Everything is restored, you see, back to her. And, and we see, whew, we see it from beginning to end, if you will. Now, what's fascinating here is not only are we reading this now, but, but the people who would be first reading this account when this uh, book of 2 Kings was finished finally would have been people who were already in exile in Israel. They, they, they'd left their, their place forced out, and they're in exile. They're aliens. They're, they, they wonder, are we ever going to be able to get back? And God makes this promise to the prophet Isaiah, you will. I've got this guy Cyrus. He's waiting in the wings. It'll, it'll be a while. But I'm calling him out right now. It'll be another generation or two. But, but I got this guy, Cyrus. He's going to come, and he's going to be another king. And, and he's going to work in such a way that, that uh, through him, you'll, you'll get back. Trust me. And you're sitting around as an Israelite thinking, will I ever get there? And somebody says, well, you remember the Shunammite woman? She got there. Look at all God did to, to bring all that about at that one particular moment in time. She looks like the luckiest woman on the face of the earth. But she's not lucky at all. Grab a hold of that. This restoration is coming. And we said, do we have anything to point to, anything to look to, anything that we can, we can hang our hat on that think is really going to come? And, 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 and they would say, well, we have the promises of God. Well, let's go all the way back and let's see how God has delivered our people over time. And, and we sit around and we say, anything we can hang our hat on that, that, can, that can help us here. And, and if it's not too irreverent, we hang our hat on the cross. And we say, oh, yes, yes, that's right. He's come. And he's the one that God says to us, I didn't spare my own son, but I gave him up for all of you. Will I, along with him, give you every good thing? Won't I? I gave you him. Can't you trust me? We go, oh, yes. I mean, think about it on the day that Jesus was betrayed and then killed. That was as evil a day as the earth has ever known. The closest followers of Jesus were wondering as they wandered. They wondered, can, can, what now? Surely from here, we can't get there. But the very truth of the matter is, because of that moment, we can get there. They didn't see it, but it's really true. He says, hang there. Believe it. The psalmist puts, this, puts it like this in Psalm number 13. He writes, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? See, this book, the Psalms, teaches us how to pray. We can actually say that to God when we really feel that way. Now, we need to come from that. We can't stop there and live there. But the psalmist says, this is God. I'm, I'm wandering here in my wandering. How long must I take counsel from my, in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? He says, I'm basically talking to myself and, and I'm not getting it right. How long do I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And 
of those days. It may well have been a physical enemy, but it could have been a spiritual one as well or both. And, and we know the spiritual enemies of our souls. We know how they can eat our lunch. It says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. And then, as almost always in the Psalms, is the but. All right. But. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In other words, he says, I, I think back on my life. I think back on the Shunammite woman. I, I think back about how you've treated our people and I realize the, how bountiful you've been with us in the past. I'll trust you. I see enough. Okay, I don't get it now, but, but I know it's coming because I know you and I know your steadfast love. Jesus is the manifestation of the steadfast love of God. So the Israelites could then know this word from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 35 that we read earlier in our worship. It speaks, he says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your Lord will come. He'll set everything right and he says when he does this is what's going to happen he says the eyes of the blind will be opened the ears of the deaf unstopped uh, and, and then the lame shall uh, lame man shall leap like a deer the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy do you remember when john the baptist was wondering he was in prison you know john uh, wasn't the cutest thing around but he was kind of the fair-haired boy at least he must have thought that Look at his life. His mom was related to Mary. He had, in his mother's womb, leapt for joy when Mary, carrying Jesus, walked into the room. He was the last, really, of the Old Testament hippie prophets, right? There he was. And now, though he had been called to prepare the way of the Lord, was in prison. And he began to wonder is this right? <laughs> is this the right guy? Did I point to the right one? I mean, why do I point to the right one and I'm in prison? I thought it would work out differently than this. So he sends his buddies to Jesus to ask Jesus if he's the one, if he's the Christ. Is he, I would put it this way from our context, is he the manifestation of the steadfast love of God? And I remember the first time or first few times I read this I was just expecting Jesus to say yes, but he didn't. He says, go tell John what you've seen. Tell him that you've seen the eyes of the blind open. Tell him that, that you've seen uh, the ears of the deaf unstopped, that, that you've seen lame men leap for joy. Tell him you've seen that. Why? Because when he had known that, he'd go, oh, yes. It's really coming. What it means is that we can bank on the fact that restoration is coming. That a day will come when we'll receive everything that sin has taken. That our bodies will be imperishable and incorruptible. 
that our minds will not be tormented by temptation and wrong thoughts, but every thought and inclination of our minds and hearts will be holy continuously. That relationships will not be strained at all. There'll be no misunderstanding among us. That love will permeate every relationship. That there'll be no pain, there'll be no weeping, there'll be no death, there'll be no poverty, there'll be no injustice. The world will not fight back. The earth will give up its produce gladly. And whatever it is that we've experienced now that's been pain will be more than restored. The scripture tells us that the glory that is to come is so great that the present suffering isn't anything to be compared to it at all. How do we know that? Well, one of the ways we know this is this woman. This woman who had no son. She had a son. He was raised. Her land was taken, but, but it was restored completely in this way that God was at work the whole time. He's still working. He's still moving in that direction. And I can't help but think this, that this woman was blessed. Why? Because she had no son. He came miraculously. And then he died, but, but then he was raised. And her whole life then changed. And everything was restored to her because the king knew of the raising of her son. Is it too much to think? But there's this one who was born miraculously. There's this one who lived. There's one who died. There's one who raised from the dead. And because of that very one who was raised from the dead and believing in him, everything will be restored to us. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. We believe it. The story of this woman will take us to the story of Jesus. And we believe that you're working even now. God, there are difficulties all over the place. Young people wonder about the rest of their lives. How are they going to get? Are they going to get a place where they should be, need to be? Give them hope that you're working even now, ruling and reigning over all things, governing and guiding all circumstances, all decisions, all people. Such a way that will be for your glory and their good that at the end of the day they'll wake up and see your goodness and glorify you because only you could have brought it about. Brothers, Father, they're in situations where relationships are so difficult, you wonder how are we ever going get, to get out of this, how are we ever going to make this work, and yet, God, we know that you're ruling and reigning in the midst of those relationships. Give us faith to know that a day will come when all will be well, and that you're even working now, and so, Father, we pray that you would intrude on these situations and bring them to wholeness, in marriages and with kids and parents. Father, in our financial lives, in the economy, and, and just providing for the needs that we have, many wonder how are we going to survive? 
unemployment and other difficulties and so Father we pray that you would grant grace and help to us in our time of need you the one who rules and reigns over all things and guides and directs all events and all circumstances and all the decisions of people that you would do that Father for those who are in health crisis wondering about that we pray God that you would grant grace there as well bring healing as is your will but grant to faith to believe that you are at work you do love that you haven't stopped that you bring restoration wholeness Father for our church as we engage the world in which we live wondering how it is that we can bring the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ into the lives of those who at present reject And so we pray that you, God, would direct and guide all circumstances, all events, all decisions, the very hearts of people, and you would change hearts of people so that as the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is shared, that they will believe, God. We pray that you would do that. You've done it for us. It's unfathomable to us how you accomplished all of that in our lives, but you did, and so we trust you, not only for ourselves, but for them. So help us, God, we pray. this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please